I'd like for you to turn to the book of John, the book of John, chapter 20, book of John, chapter 20. This is the fourth message in the four-part series that we have been in called the Fourfold Commission, the Fourfold Commission. And what we've been doing is essentially looking at the Great Commission from the four different perspectives. Actually, in the Scriptures, there's five because you see the Great Commission in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also in the book of Acts chapter 1. But we're just skipping the one in the book of Mark, and we're just going to do those four. And so just a little bit of a recap before we read this. Um, The first one was from Matthew chapter 28. And everybody's familiar with that, the Great Commission. Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end. And so that is the Great Commission. And the Great Commission we discovered, or the mission of the church, is to do what? Make disciples. Okay, so we are to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples of all nations. That is the mission of the church. That's the reason that we as a church exist, is to make disciples who make disciples. Now, the second message we went to was we went to the book of, of Luke. And in the book of Luke, as he records it, he puts a strong emphasis on the phrase, Thus it is written. And so, giving you a clue, if the mission is to make disciples who make disciples of all nations, then what is the means through which we will accomplish the mission? The Word of God. Thus it is written, Jesus says that it, it, it was fitting or it, it had to be that the Christ would fulfill all that was written of Him in the Law of Moses, in the Psalms, and in the Prophets concerning Him. And he tells them that they are to go and to preach this message. And so we discovered on that Sunday that the authority is the word of God and not us. And therefore, we can speak as ambassadors. We, are, we have a message to tell that we didn't drum up. It, it, it's, it's something that's been given to us by the Lord himself. And we are to hand it down authoritatively to the rest of the world. So make disciples who make disciples, and the means through which we make disciples is the Word of God. The Word of God is necessary to making disciples, whereas so many other things that we utilize in in discipleship and in church, they are not necessary to accomplish the mission the way the Word is necessary. We have to have the Word of God or we cannot fulfill the mission. Okay, the third one, last week we went to the book of Acts chapter 1, as Luke tells it again. He gives it just a little different flavor, didn't he? Told it from a little different uh, perspective. It was the same event, but he tells it and he adds some things that he did not give us as he finished up in the book of Luke. And so what we looked at last week was the power and the scope of the mission. So the power to accomplish the mission is what? Or rather, is who? The Holy Spirit. So we cannot make disciples without the Word of God because Jesus said that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you will bear fruit. You will will be his disciples and you will be faithful to him to the degree that you're faithful to his Word. But as we discovered last week, you and I cannot accomplish the purposes of God. We can't accomplish the mission of God apart from the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And so just as much as we said that the Word is indispensable, it's absolutely critical, it is necessary, it is essential to accomplishing the mission of the church, it is just as necessary, it is just essential that we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we cannot accomplish the mission. And so we have an impossible task before us this morning to make disciples who make disciples of all nations. And so you and I have to look at this thing and realize that this is something we must take personally. 
We cannot just look around in the room and look around at the other churches and look around at the missions organizations in the world and say, let them do it. Now, many people do that, but that is direct disobedience to the Lord our God. And so today, from the gospel according to John, we're going to look at the mode of the mission, the mode of the mission. And I'm going to not say it right off so that I can let you think and let the wheels turn a minute. And I want to see if, and, and you just think in your mind, what do you think the mode is, you know, of the mission? To accomplish the mission, uh, there, there's this flavor, you know, that gets us there. And let's read the text together and see what it says. So chapter 20 of John and verse 19. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Holy Father in heaven, You are holy. And even as the angels around your throne now have continued that song that we left off singing, holy, 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 as the Lord God Almighty was and is and is to come. The whole earth is full of your glory. Today we want to come and worship you and bow down and thank you for who you are the God of heaven and earth, the God who so loved the world that you gave your only son so that we could believe and those who believe would be saved. And those that are saved would be commissioned to take this same gospel, the same good news, to all the other nations of the world. And Lord, we're thankful today that there have been many men and women down through the centuries who have been faithful, who have been obedient to the Great Commission, who have been faithful to your word, who have been empowered by your spirit to make disciples who make disciples so that we today, who are your children, we, we are direct recipients of that faithfulness and obedience. Thank you, Lord. And God, we just pray that you will help us as individual Christians, Lord, to be obedient. Help us, Lord, as a church to be obedient to this mission. In the power of your spirit, for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, did you catch it as we read together? The mode? <laughs> it's This one is the one that... I think is so strongly implied in the text, and yet it is difficult to see. This is one of the more simpler givings, as it were, of the Great Commission, isn't it? I want to say a couple of words about verse 22 and 23, because that is not going to be the main emphasis of this sermon. And because it's not, I know some of you may have some questions there, and I'm probably not going to do justice with the answer. But I want to just say a couple things about those. Verse 21 is going to be the key to our text and to our sermon this morning and the emphasis of our time. But let me just say a couple things. In verse 22, it says that after Jesus said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, sometimes it's easier to understand a statement by understanding what it does not mean. Okay? 
Now, what this does not mean is that there are stages of receiving the Holy Spirit. So there's not stage one where you receive a little bit of the Holy Spirit and then stage two later on when you receive more of the Holy Spirit and stage three and four. And we don't know how far that would end. Some people believe that's what the Bible teaches. But that's not what the Bible teaches and that's not what this text is teaching. This is not saying that the disciples received the Holy Spirit. This is um, the verb, the tone of the verb is ongoing, okay, in its nature, which means they are to be receiving the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. Remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and uttermost parts of the world. And so we at that moment Jesus is still telling them to wait in Jerusalem until you receive this power. To receive this promise from on high. This receiving of the Holy Spirit. So that's not what it means. It means simply that they are to continue waiting for the Holy Spirit. And if there is a possibility here that the wording also has the connotation of them, of of Jesus doing something here where they're receiving the Holy Spirit. But this would not be any different than the disciples had already received throughout the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. Think about it for just a moment. How did the disciples, the apostles, when Jesus sent them out to heal all manner of diseases and to cast out demons and to do these miracle works, how did they accomplish them? Did they accomplish them in the energy of the flesh? No. They accomplished what they accomplished the same way that Jesus of Nazareth did what he did, and that is filled and empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And so when he tells them this, he, there is a very real sense of which they receive the Holy Spirit here. But it's not the promise that he said would come that even after this, he would be taken up. And he says, just stay in Jerusalem. And we know that 10 days later is when Acts chapter 2 takes place. 10 days later, after Jesus ascends into the heavens, that the Holy Spirit actually comes and permanently indwells each and every one of the disciples. And after he permanently indwells each and every one of the disciples, then they are empowered to be his witnesses, just like he said. So that's that. And the second thing is that that, that deal about if you forgive somebody's sins, they're forgiven. If you withhold, they are withheld. Again, what that does not mean is that you and I as Christians have the authority to forgive people's sins. Okay? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that if you look at it in light of verse 21, which I mentioned would be the heart of this sermon and the heart of this text, by the way. As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. You understand that what this is, is the Great Commission. To go into the world, as the book of Mark says, you know, and preach the gospel to every creature. So as we go to all the nations of the world and we proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sinners can be saved and forgiven of their sins, that they will turn in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, guess what's going to happen? Those people, to all who do that in truth, their sins are forgiven. So that's what he's saying. That you and I are ambassadors of heaven's king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we proclaim the good news, the truth of the gospel, people repent and believe that gospel and trust Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven. But if we preach the gospel and they don't believe, then guess what? Their sins are not forgiven. And that's what he's saying in verse 23. Okay. Now, the mode of the mission is incarnational if you put that in a word processor it will red flag you You know you get those little red dots underneath there that says that that's not actually a word well it may not be but it is (laughs) incarnation is a word you know what that means right incarnation when do we celebrate the incarnation (laughs) come on church people when do we celebrate the incarnation Well, I'll tell you what, 
our, our country is really confused about this time of year because what most of the people in our country think about this time of year is a man who wears a white hat with a little white, uh, a red hat with a white ball on the end of it. He carries a red bag. He drops down through people's chimneys. You know who I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, Santa Claus. Well, what do we celebrate at that time? The birth of Jesus Christ. Okay, that is what we call the incarnation. It is when Jesus, God, the Son, clothes himself in human flesh, incarnate, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. He comes and dwells among the very people in which he is going to save. Now, the reason that I mention this, this is so important to this church. This is so important to your life as a Christian. Because your life as a Christian has a mission. And that mission is that you would be a part of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples of all nations. And the means through which we're going to accomplish that mission is by the word of God. We cannot do it without God's word. And the power through which we will accomplish the mission and be fruitful and understand how to do it and do it with success is through the power of God the Holy Spirit. And the mode through which we should do it is the incarnational mode. The incarnational mode. Now, before I get to that, let's back up a little bit. Because in verse 21, it says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So if you're a note taker, just write this little phrase down. Peace precedes proclamation peace precedes proclamation jesus says to his disciples here twice peace be with you now the reason he does that you know why he does it think about it think about where they are think about where they are in their lives right now think about the situation and the circumstance remember last week (laughs) <laughs> remember the week before last when we talked to, from, the, from Luke's gospel as he told it remember that remember I talked to you about how the, how the one that they just had believed in the one they had trusted would be the Messiah to come he was fulfilling all these prophecies he could teach like no other man could teach he was healing people he was casting out demons he was doing all of these miracle things he was even raising the dead he could command the waves and the winds and they would obey him He could walk on the water. He could reach out and touch a person who had the skin disease of leprosy. And instead of that leprosy leaping onto him, he would actually cure that person of that disease. And all of a sudden, he gets arrested. He's mocked. He's he's crucified on the cross. And he's placed in the grave. And everybody starts looking around and saying, you know, what, what, isn't he the guy? I mean... Who else could the Messiah be? What more could the Messiah do than what this man has done? And so they were anxious and they were troubled and they were worried. And Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you. And he says it a second time, peace be with you. Because it is peace that must precede proclamation. Before you and I can be powerful witnesses for Jesus Christ, before we can make disciples and make disciples in the midst of sorrow and tragedy and difficulty and temptation, you and I must have, first of all, peace with God. You see, there's two types of peace that's mentioned in Scripture. The first one is peace with God, and the second one is the peace of God. Peace with God and the peace of God. The peace with God is the peace that was achieved by the perfect, obedient life of Jesus of Nazareth that climaxed in his obedience to the Father as he went to the old Roman cross and laid down his life for sinners and arose from the grave. Jesus accomplished peace between sinners and a holy God that we sang about a few moments ago when he gave his life on the cross of Calvary. He died in our place as a substitute, thereby making peace with God. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the peace that we have with God is not because of the righteous works that we have done. It's not because we earn peace with God. It's not because we can buy peace with God. It's not because we, our good outweighs our bad. That's not the way it works. The way that you can have peace with God, the way that we have peace with God this morning, is through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross when he gave his life for sinners. That's what Paul said in another place as he was writing in Ephesians 2, verses 14 and following. Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace, talking about Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, and he's talking about between Jews and Gentiles, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, how? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, And peace to those who are near. So there is a peace with God through Jesus. Let's just stop and ask ourselves right now this question. Do you have peace with God? Because you know really nothing is more important than that. If you would walk out of here today and win a billion dollars... If you would walk out of here today and be given the home of your dreams, the vacation of your dreams, the job of your dreams, the person of your dreams, none of that would be even comparable to having peace with God through Jesus Christ. And I just want to ask you, do you have it? If you do not have peace with God, that is the most pressing question that you can grapple with. And listen, it's simple. To have peace with God You turn away from sin. That's called repentance. Repentance is a word that means to change your mind and to have actions that are corresponding to that change of mind. So, you know, whatever it is that you're into, you know, sin comes in all kinds of shades and and all kinds of forms and fashions. But whatever it is that predominantly grips your heart and holds you captive to that sin, then you have to, first of all, in your mind and in your heart, agree that it's sinful. You have to agree with God and His Word that that's wrong. That's in rebellion against God. And then in agreement with that reality, as you know it to be the case, you change directions and you change your actions by the power of God who will help you to change. And you must believe on Jesus Christ. And Him alone for the forgiveness of sins and to bring you into a peaceful relationship with God. So that's the first kind of peace, the peace with God. The second one is the peace of God. Now this one means a whole lot to our disciples here in this text because they need the peace. They have the peace with God because they know Jesus, they believe in Jesus. They've been saved, but what they need is the peace of God. The peace of God that transcends any and all circumstances that we might find ourselves in. The peace of God that helps us to be bold and that helps us to be courageous in the midst of persecution and trials. These disciples were hiding in an upper room. They were afraid. And Jesus says, peace be with you. He tells them, in essence, to abandon their shelter and go out into the world that does not want them to come. And he tells them in advance, he says, some of you are going to be, uh, some of you are going to be persecuted. Some of you are going to be beaten. Some of you are going to be in prison. Some of you are going to be killed. But my commandment is for you to go (laughs) and make disciples who make disciples of all nations. And so they need the peace of God to encourage them and the peace of God to strengthen them. John Stott writes concerning this passage here, and he says, quote, 
we learn then that the church's very first need, before we can begin to engage in evangelism, is an experience and an assurance of Christ's peace. Peace of conscience through His death that banishes sin. Peace of mind through His resurrection that banishes doubt. Once we are glad that we have seen the Lord, and once we have clearly recognized Him as our crucified and risen Savior, then nothing and no one will be able to silence us. So if you have fears in your heart, you have doubts in your mind about witnessing to your family member, to your neighbor, to your co-worker, to the person you go to school with, you have doubts about that, you have fears about that, you have reservations about that, this is what kind of peace Jesus is bringing. He's saying, peace be with you. And, and wh- where do you think the peace comes from at this moment? In case you were drifted there. Where do you think it comes from? And I agree with you, brother. It, it does come from the Spirit. We, we can receive not one thing except through the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit brings the peace in this instance through the seeing and recognizing the resurrected Savior. I mean, this is the man who did all those miracles, remember? This is the man who was, who was mocked, who was um, betrayed, who was arrested, who was crucified and buried in the grave. And guess what? He's standing there looking at you in the face. And listen, if you understand today that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ and you have assurance of the peace of God because you know that you know that Jesus is alive today and that he dwells in you through his spirit, then you, my friend, can conquer any fear. And no one will be able to silence your witness. Now, let's transition for just a moment to thinking about this mode of the mission, the incarnation, mode, the mode. Incarnational means that our mission in the world is to be patterned after Christ's mission in the world. It's to be patterned after Him. What it means to be a disciple is to be a person who knows and follows Jesus Christ. So you have to ask yourself, do I know and follow Jesus Christ? Are you walking in the same kind of steps that Jesus walked in? Are you speaking the same words that Jesus spoke? Are you acting with the same kind of actions that Jesus Christ acted with? This is what it means for us to be a disciple. To be a person who knows and follows Christ. To be a person who's being transformed by Christ. A person whom God has indwelt by His Spirit. And whom God is working on and changing and transforming you into the very image of Christ. To give you his heart's, his heart's desire. To give you his very nature. And a person who's committed to the mission of Christ. And taking it even farther. Thinking about this word incarnational. Not, our, not, not only are you are following through on the mission that he's given you. But you're doing it in a way that is like he did it. So it's not just that you're trying to make disciples any which way you can, but you're looking at that commission and you're saying, okay, I want to be faithful and obedient to the Great Commission by doing the same things the same way Jesus did them. That's being incarnational. To pattern your life ministry after the pattern of Jesus. He was the first missionary And you and I have been sent out in the same way. Because the key to understanding that is the word as and so. As the Father, in the same way that the Father sent me, I am sending you into the world. You say, well, I don't see the words into the world. Well, turn over just a few chapters back to chapter 17. Chapter 17. And in chapter 17, verse 18, listen to what Jesus, this is the high priestly prayer. This is where Jesus is praying to the Father, he's praying for his disciples, and he's praying for those who will believe on him through their witness. And he says, he's talking to the Father in prayer. Jesus says, 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so this is the principle of incarnation. The principle of becoming one with the people that we are sent to. Because God, listen, Jesus did did not speak to us the gospel from heaven with a megaphone. Jesus, God didn't just communicate with you and I through an impersonal communication. The way that Jesus communicates with you and the way that Jesus communicates with me and the way that God communicates with the world and the nations is to come through the incarnation and actually take upon himself flesh so that he actually feels what we feel and experiences what we experience. You understand the difference? And the way that we accomplish the mission of making disciples is not uh, from a distance, (laughs) you know, kind of yelling at the world to change. But the way that we are to do mission work, ministry work of making disciples is to be incarnational, to reach out to the people where they are and help them come to know the Savior that we love and enjoy as we love and enjoy Him. Think about the significance of that phrase, into the world. It means that Jesus did not stay in heaven, though He clearly could have. It means that He didn't shout the words of salvation safely from heaven's throne. But He, he transcended, he, he stepped off of that throne in glory... And he came down here to the dust and the pain of what it is to live the human experience. He was born, he grew, he suffered, and he died. And why did he do it? Jesus said in Mark, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life a ransom for many. He says, I came not, I came to seek and to save that which was, what? Lost. And that's how you and I have been sent into the world. The same way that he came into the world is the way that we are to go out into the world. To become one with those whom, to whom we are sent. And this is where I think the church becomes very guilty at times. Because what we want to do is we want the world to become like us before we will reach out to them. And that's the wrong way to do it. The people that are out there in our community today that are lost, that are dead in their trespasses and in sin, and they are spiritually blind and deaf, And their hearts are stony hearts. And they're at enmity with God. And they're in rebellion toward God. And the way that we are going to reach them is not by yelling at them from a distance. But by getting down there where they are. And of course I know some of you are thinking, well isn't that dangerous? (laughs) I mean because when we get down there where the sinners are, then we might be dragged into their mess. It's It's possible. It's possible, but it is also what we've been charged and commissioned, commanded to do. John Stott, again, I think his words are very, very powerful here. Listen as I share them with you. He says, I personally believe that our failure to obey the implications of this command is the greatest weakness of evangelical Christians in the field of evangelism today. He's talking about John 20, 21, our text. We, listen to this, we do not identify. We do not identify. You know, the world knows things about a lot of us church members that we don't seem to know ourselves. (laughs) 
I mean, because a lot of times when they come in here, we treat them with such a holier-than-thou disposition. And the way we come across to so many people that are out in sin makes them think that we think that we don't have any sin. And guess what? They know better. They know better. They know better about you. Yes, you and me. And they also know that you and I have the same human experience that they do. He goes on to say, we do not identify. We believe so strongly and rightly in proclamation that we tend to proclaim our message from a distance. We sometimes appear like people who shout advice to drowning men from the safety of the seashore. We do not dive in to rescue them. We're afraid of getting wet and indeed of greater perils than this. But Jesus Christ did not broadcast salvation from the sky. He visited us in great humility. He goes on to say, we cannot give up preaching for proclamation is of the essence of salvation. They can't be saved unless they hear the message of the gospel. How can they, how can they hear without a preacher and how can he preach unless he be sent? And we've been sent to preach. That's true, but we've been sent to preach in a relational way. Not in a cold, distant way. He says... Yet true evangelism, evangelism that is modeled on the ministry of Jesus, is not proclamation without identification. Any more than it is identification without proclamation. Evangelism involves both together. And so you and I are not really fulfilling the Great Commission until we live with, till we befriend, till we love and enter into the experiences of those to whom we are sent. Now, I'm not saying that you and I need to sin in order to see people come to salvation. You don't have to do that, trust me. You'll, you'll sin enough on your own. But what we have to do is identify with those that we're trying to reach as people that we can identify with because each and every one of us were, are sinners just like they are. And we need to treat them as such. Thank God someone was willing to share with us Thank God someone was willing to reach down and to care for us and have compassion for us and have grace for us and mercy for us and love for us. Thank God for that. As I have been sent, Jesus says, so I'm sending you. And let me close very briefly by giving you a few ways in which I think we should model our lives and our ministries after Jesus. Number, number one is that we should be like Jesus in his purpose. And the purpose is twofold. Twofold purpose. Number one is to glorify God. Jesus did everything that he did to glorify the Father. And if you and I are going to live and be obedient to God in the way that God has prescribed in giving us the model of King Jesus, then we must live our daily lives to the honor and the glory of God the Father. The second part of the purpose is that we would also not only live to glorify God, but we would live to save sinners. Jesus Christ said, I came into the world to save sinners. Jesus said, I'm going to lay down my life for my sheep. He came to this world to die for sinners, and we must do the same. Jesus told us, that if we would follow him, we must deny ourselves daily, take up our cross and follow him. And that's what we must do. There's no place more touching to me in the scriptures about Jesus and his attitude than Philippians chapter 2. If you would turn there as we begin to wind down, look at this with me in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5. Well, let's go back up to uh, verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, the mind that Jesus had, the attitude that he had is the mind that you and I are to have. What is that mind? He goes on to say, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped onto. He didn't hold on to that. He didn't hold that up in front of everybody and say, hey, look, I'm God in the flesh. What he did was he humbled himself. It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. My friends, that is the attitude. That is the incarnational model. It's not to stand on the seashore with your safety and your ticket to heaven in your hand and let the rest of the world drown. But it is to get down there where they are in the water. It is to come to them where they are and help them to get to where they need to be. Three things from Philippians 2 that we could model after our Savior. Number one is His humility. His humility. The reason that so many people, I believe, identify with Jesus so easily and so quickly was simply because Jesus was humble. How many of you like arrogant people? (laughs) I mean, we just don't tend to gravitate toward people who are arrogant and haughty and proud, even though each and every one of us are. Jesus was humble. Secondly, he was a servant. He was willing to serve others. You see, no one likes the idea and the command of proclaiming the gospel more than I do. I love the preaching aspect of the ministry. But Jesus has called us to do more than that. And you say, well, how do you know? Because it's the way Jesus did it. And if we're going to model our proclamation after Jesus' proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, then we're going to have to do some things that he did. And he was willing to get down there, and he was willing to deal with sickness and disease. He was willing to get down there and deal with demons. He was willing to get down there and deal with people who were hungry and thirsty. He was willing to rub shoulders with the people that he came to save. And if this church is ever going to grow, if this church is ever going to see disciples made, not only in fulfillment of the commission and the mission of the church, but in the way in which Jesus fulfilled his mission and modeled it for us, then we're going to have to get out there and get with the sinners as well. He was humble. He was a servant. He was self-sacrificing. You know, it's going to take some of your time. It's It's going to take some of your money. It's going to take some of your talent in order to get down there and sacrifice self to see people come to faith in Christ. He identified with them. He said, well, I don't know if what you're saying is true. Well, let's take a little journey. And this this is my, this is, I'm really coming to the, this is the end road. I have more to say, but I'm I'm going to leave it out. And turn to the book of Luke chapter 15. If you, don't, you don't have to turn if you don't want to. I, I just want to show you that what I'm trying to say is not coming out of the air. But I believe it's there clearly in our text in John chapter 20, verse 21. And I believe it's clear in the life of Jesus Christ. Here's, here's what it says. In Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the complaint that the religious leaders had about Jesus of Nazareth is he spends too much time with sinners. Now, when have you been accused of that? (laughs) You ever had a man say, you know, I don't understand you. You're you're hanging out with so-and-so an awful lot, aren't you? And certainly, listen, there are dangers in this. It is dangerous. But you have to understand that if you go in there, listen, if you go down there where the world is, and you get into the water where you can drown, but if you go in there with the Word of God, and you go in there through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to drown, you're going to help save people. Look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 and verse 7.
And when they saw it, they all grumbled. <laughs> Reminds me of a lot of church members. He has gone into the into be the guest of a man who is a sinner. <laughs> there he is again, hanging out with sinners. Zacchaeus. The, listen, and you know what? We have a tendency to do this. We don't do it the same way they did. Now, they didn't like Zacchaeus. You know why? Because he was a tax collector. And tax collectors were collecting taxes for the Roman oppressive government. (laughs) And tax collectors were known for taking more taxes than they should take in order to line their own pockets. People didn't like them. How many of you like paying taxes? But you know, we do it in other ways. Because if you don't look like me, if you don't talk like me, if you don't dress like me, if you don't like the same kind of music I like, if you don't go to the same places I go, then I'm not going to hang out with you. That's the way we do it today. There's so many different ways in which we do this same thing to people. How about Luke chapter 5 and verse 30? Luke chapter 5. In verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the life on life approach to evangelism and making disciples. <laughs> there, is no, there is no program that makes disciples. You know who makes disciples? Other disciples. Programs don't make disciples. People do. And this is the life-on-life approach of our Lord. Jesus did it. The apostle... Paul did it. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I'm not, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Jesus did it. The apostle Paul did it. And you and I will have to do it if we would see disciples made for Jesus. So the mode of disciple making is incarnational. Let me leave you with a story. Peter Hale, assistant, uh, he was a headmaster of uh, Stony Brook School in Long Island, told a story that illustrates a, a powerful point here, I think. He had a missionary friend. It was a, she was, it was a woman who was a doctor. And she was going into a place to witness these people and help these people with her gifts as a doctor uh, in India. But it was short notice and she didn't have time to learn the language that she was going to need when she got there. So she had to speak through an interpreter who was a native, an indigenous person there. And after she'd been there a while, she wrote back to the Hales expressing frustration, discouragement, said, you know, I've been showing love. I've been trying to be loving and gentle with these people, but it, they don't seem to be responding to any of this love and gentleness. And she asked them to pray about it. And a few weeks later, she wrote again, telling them what the problem was. She had discovered that the problem wasn't with, wasn't with her, but the problem was with her translator. You see, evidently the translator was a very 
uh, crude and rude individual. And although she was trying to love them and help them, the way that he was representing her was not true to her real heart and character. And so you know where I'm going. How are you living your life? Are you truly representing Jesus Christ as he really is? With love, compassion, grace, mercy, humility, service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you today for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you were willing to go to that cross. But even more than just going to the cross, Lord, you were willing to come and take upon yourself flesh. Because it was only as a man that you could die in our place. But on the road to that old rugged cross, you experienced what it is to be a human being. And you have a compassion that that we want in this church, a compassion that I want in my life. And Lord, we just pray and ask you right now to forgive us where we have failed to be incarnational, where we have failed, Lord, to reflect your heart your nature, your character. We pray and ask you to change us. Continue to shape us and to mold us in the very image of Christ. That we might be disciple-making disciples until you return or we get called home. And I pray that you would help us to do it in the power of your Spirit, standing upon the authority of your Holy Word, rubbing shoulder to shoulder, eye to eye in the water where the drowning people are. Help us to do it for your glory, for your honor. Help us to do it for the glory and the fame of the name of Jesus. And help us to do it for the sake of those souls who are on their way to hell. We pray for this in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen.